We are nearing the conclusion of chapter 3 of Perkeavos, of Chapters of the Fathers. We have a very interesting character, one of the great sages, one of the great luminaries of the era, and he's going to teach us a very interesting Mishnah, and we're going to spend significant time talking about the batch story of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and try to delve into the deep mysteries of his teaching. Chapter 3, Mishnah 21, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah Omer, Rabbi Elazar, the son of Azariah, says, Imein Torah and Derech Eretz, Imein Derech Eretz, Ein Torah. If there's no Torah, there is no Derech Eretz. Derech Eretz literally means the way of the world. And if there's no Derech Eretz, there's no Torah. Imein Chachma and Yira, Imein Yira and Chachma. If there's no wisdom, there's no fear of God. If there's no fear of God, there is no wisdom. Imein Das Ein Bina. If there's no knowledge, there's no understanding. If there's no understanding, there's no knowledge. And finally, If there's no flower, there is no Torah. And if there's no Torah, there is no flower. A very interesting structure of this Mishnah. There's four comparisons, eight items that are interdependent. Each one is dependent on the other. Torah with Derecheretz, Derecheretz with Torah. You can't have one without the other. You can't have wisdom without fear of God. You can't have knowledge without insight. And you can't have Torah without flower. You can't have flower without Torah. So a very interesting idea. Obviously, there is uh, a lot of layers of understanding. We'll try to plumb those depths a little bit. But before we dive into the content of the Mishnah, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah has one of the most interesting uh, stories of the sages of, of the era. He is a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Yehoshua. And he reaches his prominence at a very young age in the city of Yavna, the coastal city where all the rabbis congregated after the temple is destroyed. Uh, he is a Kohen, a priest. He is a 10th generation from Ezra. So he has sterling pedigree. His father's 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 father was Ezra, who of course was Ezra the, Ezra the scribe, who was the architect and the builder, the leader of Jewish people during the building of the second temple. And he actually appears in the Passover Haggadah, where the five sages are experiencing the Passover night, and they're talking about the miracles of the Exodus until the wee hours of the morning, until eventually they have to be pulled away from their discussions by their students because the time to recite the morning Shema has arrived. So that event was attended by Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Eliezer, and Rabbi Tarfon, and of course, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Now, the most interesting story about his life is also the one that the Talmud dedicates a tremendous amount of, um, of time to parse out, is when he became the Nasi or the interim Nasi. Uh, Nasi is, of course, the highest office of the Jewish people. After the temple is destroyed, we don't no longer have kings, we no longer have high priests. The Nasi is it, is the equivalent of the king or the monarch. In a very unusual and a very controversial manner, he was appointed as Nasi to replace the deposed Nasi. The Nasi, the, the incumbent, was deposed, because of a very a controversial event that happened, and they were looking for a successor, and they chose him. 
And that's, I think, uh, obviously the most significant uh, event that the Talmud tells us of his life, and we'll tell that story first. It is found in the Talmud of the Book of Brachos, on page 27b and 28a. And the Talmud tells us as follows. In the academy, so all the rabbis are congregated into one academy in Yavna. And you have all the great sages and all the great uh, heroes of the time. And there was a student, unnamed student. Later on we find out that this is actually a very prominent student. This is the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is kind of the next generation of, of sages. He's the student of Rabbi Tiva. But he was a student at the time, and he asks Rabbi Yahushua the following question. We know that there's three daily prayers. And on festivals and Shabbat, there's four daily prayers. And one day a year, Yom Kippur, there's five prayers. But one of the prayers, the evening prayer, is called Arvit, or Ma'ariv. And the question that was posed, is this obligatory or is this optional? Is the prayer of Arvit, is it obligatory or is it optional? So he says to him, it's optional. That's what Rabbi Shua answers this unnamed student. That same student goes over to Rabban Gamliel. And whenever you hear the term Rabban, your ears should perk up. Because the term Rabban, not Rabbi, but Rabban, is applied exclusively to the Nasi. He was the rabbi of all rabbis. He's called not just rabbi, he's called Rabban. Rabban Gamliel is the Nasi. He is a great-grandchild of Hillel. His father was the Nasi, and his grandfather was the Nasi, and his great-grandfather was the Nasi, and his great-great-grandfather was Hillel, the Nasi of all Nasis. So the most prestigious family, the greatest uh, lineage of of the Jewish people, direct descendant of David. This is the monarchy where there is no monarchy. And this student comes and asks Rabbi Gamliel the following question. Evening prayer, is it obligatory or is it optional? The very same question that he asked Rabbi Yeshua earlier. And he gives him a different answer. He tells him, evening prayers is obligatory. It's not optional, it's obligatory. So he says to him, I don't get it. I asked Rabbi Yeshua last week, and he gave me a different answer. He said it was optional. So Rabbi Yeshua says, oh, okay, I'm going to solve this problem. You wait until the masters of the shields, which is a euphemism for the Torah scholars, when they gather together in the academy... In the base medrash, I'm going to solve this dilemma. So all the rabbis congregate and all the sages are there. And of course, the Nasi, he's giving the lecture. And the question is posed, is the evening prayer, is it obligatory or is it optional? And Ram Gamliel gets up, he's the Nasi, and he says, it's obligatory. And then he makes the following pronouncement. Is there anybody in the room that wants to dissent? Is there anybody that wants to disagree? Now, it's very important for us to understand that at this time, this is the time of reunification of the nation. They had spent the large part of the Second Temple era with all kinds of factionalism, all these different groups, and even for the last almost 100 years, you have the Academy of Shaman and the Academy of Hillel. And now everyone's coalesced into one building, in effect, and we're trying to solve all the problems, and we're trying to resolve all the conflicts. The conflicts brought us the destruction of Judea, the destruction of the temple, all these other groups that splintered off from Judaism. We're done with that. Everything's coming together. And Rogamliel, he's at the he's the figurehead of that. He's the, he's the leader of that, and his mission and his mandate is solving these disagreements, 
resolving the disputes and unifying the nation. So he asked the question, who here wants to argue with my ruling? And there's not a single sound no one gets up. And of course, Rabbi Yeshua is in the audience. So he starts asking the students, okay, do you, do you agree? Do you agree? And Rabbi Yeshua says, no, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't disagree with you. So Rabbi Gamliel tells Rabbi Yeshua, I, I don't understand. Someone told me in your name that you ruled that the evening prayer is optional. So he's testing Yoshua, stand on your feet, get up. I want these people to testify against you, or I want you to testify that indeed your position on this matter is the same as mine. So Rabbi Yeshua stands up and he says, listen, I, I can't, I can't dispute the account. If that unnamed student, if he was not alive and I was alive, well, I could disagree with the account. I could say, well, I never argued that it was optional. I always believed it was obligatory. But now that he's also here in the room, how could I possibly argue with him? How could I disagree with him? His word is indeed correct. So the matter was resolved apparently, but Rabbi Yeshua is still standing. And in an effort to pursue his mandate of curbing dissent for the need of the time to unify the nation, Rabbi Gamliel did not ask Rabbi Yeshua, okay, now you can sit down. He kept him standing. And if the Nasi doesn't tell you to sit down, you stay standing. And for the rest of the lecture, the rabbi is giving a lecture, and he's sitting, and the rest of the students are sitting. And Rabbi Yeshua, who was of the two greatest sages, he was a greater scholar than Rabbi Gamliel. He's been forced to stand to show Avon a lesson, to teach Avon a lesson. And of course, this is not, it's important to stress, and this is, the Talmud is clear. This is not some sort of petty dispute that the two sages had, fighting for power, things like that. It was a time when the authority had to be centralized, when we've had a hundred years of dissent, when we had, we've had generations where half of the academy was in one camp, half the academy was in another camp, and the whole nation at large was splintered, and the effort of Yavne was to unite everyone. And therefore, the, the Nazi, Rabbi Gamliel, took very extreme measures. The problem is, is that all the people who are there, all the students, all the assembled, they start to murmur amongst themselves. This is crazy. This is unconscionable. How is, how is he causing such a tremendous disgrace to Rabbi Yoshua? And the problem was that this was not the first standoff between the two. This was not even the second, so to speak, standoff between the two. This is the third time that a very similar idea or similar event had happened between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabban Gamliel. Because this was the third event between these, these two titans, the decision was made right then and there by the people who were assembled. That, that's it. Rabban Gamliel has gone too far. We understand his mission and his mandate. We, we understand what he's trying to impart. But this is the third time it's happened. It's enough. And he's done. We're going to find a replacement. We're going to fire him. 
We're going to force him to abdicate. He has to leave. We're deposing him. And we're going to install a new Nasi. This has gone a little bit too far. And in the Talmud, the Talmud hints at two other events, the two other events that happened between Abishur and Rabbi Gamliel that justified, that warranted uh, this very drastic move. Because remember, Rabbi Gamliel, the first family of Jewish people, great sage, his father was the Nazi before him, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, etc. He's the one who lawfully, legitimately had that role and he and he earned it. I mean, he, he had the credentials as well. He was the legitimate Nazi, but they felt that this was too much and therefore he has to be put back in his place. He has to be limited. He has to be deposed. And the Talmud hints that this is the third time that this has happened in the book of, in the book of Rosh Hashanah, the Talmud tells us that there was a dis- disagreement between Rabbi Yehoshua and Rabbi Gamliel with respect to two witnesses who came to testify about the new, the new moon. Rabbi Yehoshua believed that these were invalid witnesses. And therefore, the day that they consecrated as Rosh Chodesh, as the first day of the month, is indeed the last day of the previous month. And the following day is Rosh Chodesh. And Rakhamliel viewed that they were valid witnesses, and therefore the day that they consecrated as Rosh Chodesh was indeed Rosh Chodesh, and the following day was the second day of the month, not the first day of the month. And therefore, if you play at this disagreement, Rabbi Yeshua has his calendar of this month, and Rabbi Gamliel has a different calendar of that month. And the problem is that... That month was the month of Tishrei, the month in which Yom Kippur falls out, and therefore Rabbi Gamliel, the Nasi, and Rabbi Yoshua, the greatest sage, they have a different Yom Kippur. And of course, nothing symbolizes a divided nation where we can't even agree on when Yom Kippur is. So Rabbi Gamliel tells Rabbi Yoshua, I decree upon you, I force you, I obligate you, that on the day that you think is Yom Kippur, which is indeed the day after the day that I think is Yom Kippur, you have to come to me with your staff, with your money pouch, i.e. you have to violate Yom Kippur the day that you think is Yom Kippur, to show that you accept the ruling. And he was very disturbed about that, and the Talmud describes what he did in the interim days, but ultimately he capitulated, and indeed he accepted the ruling of the Nasi, and he appeared to Rabbi Gamliel on Yom Kippur, the day that he thought was Yom Kippur, the day after Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Gamliel stood up for him and said, Peace be, t- be unto you, my teacher and my student. You're my teacher because you're a greater sage, but you're my student because you accepted the ruling of the Sanhedrin. And then there was another disagreement or another, I guess, uh, episode of tension between between Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Gamliel, and that's with respect to a very, um, I would say, esoteric question. But the question is, what is the law with a firstborn animal that belongs to the Kohen, but it only becomes his if it develops a blemish? So there is a there is an incentive for the Kohen who owns the animal to have it become blemished. And therefore... There's certain blemishes that if they are inflicted by the coin, they're not qualified because we're worried that they're tipping the scale, basically. But the question was, what happens when you have a great Torah scholar who's also a coin and a blemish happens? Do we differentiate between a regular coin and a Torah scholar coin? And Rabbi Yeshua said yes, and Rabbi Gamil said no. And again, there was a debate in the House of Scholarship, in the Academy, 
And again, he made Rabbi Yeshua stand. So this is the third time that this has happened. And the people said, this is enough. We are looking for a successor, a replacement. They told the, uh, the, the Turgamon, the Turgamon is, in effect, the amplifier, which is the, the, the great rabbi wouldn't scream. I'd imagine the acoustics of the ancient buildings were probably not as advanced as we have today. They had a hired a, a streamer, a crier, in effect, that they would give the lecture to the crier, and every word that they would say, every sentence they would say, the crier would boom it out to the whole, to the whole assembled crowd. So they told the choir, stop talking, we're not listening to you. And he got stopped. All the rabbis came and told him to stop. And basically they torpedoed the lecture and they said, okay, Rangam Leo, sorry, you are no longer a Nasi and we're looking for a replacement. Which is, of course, very drastic and very unprecedented. So the rabbis got together and they said, okay, well, who are we going to appoint? Now, the most natural candidate is, of course, Rabbi Yoshua. Because he's the greatest scholar. The problem is, is that because he was the one who was involved in this event that brought Rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel's ouster, they felt that it would be inappropriate to appoint him. According to one opinion, it's because he's going to cause pain to Rabbi, to Rabbi Gamaliel, undue pain. Rabbi Gamaliel has to be deposed, yes, but we don't want to kind of rub salt in his wounds by saying, oh, your opponent, he's now in charge. Uh, alternatively, there was a concern, perhaps, that people would say, oh, Rabbi Yeshua only argued with Rabbi Gamliel because he was angling for his job. And because we want to avoid that, he's disqualified. Well, who's the next, the next best candidate? Of course, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, again, he's the next generation, but he was already advanced uh, at the time, and everyone realized that he's the next great leader of the people. The problem is that his father's a convert. And therefore, we're worried that even though he himself has merit, but the, what, there's a concept in the Talmud called schus avot, which means merit of your forebearers. And because he doesn't have the merit of the forebearers, he's a self-made man, he doesn't have that same clout, and it's possible that he's going to run in with Rabbi Gamliel as well. He won't be bulletproof against Rabbi Gamliel. So finally, they made a very interesting decision, and they decided to appoint... Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, the author of our Mishnah, as the Nasi. At the time, the Talmud tells us that he was a grand total of 18 years old. He was very, very young, but he had three tremendous things going for him. Number one, he was a giant Torah scholar. Number two, he was fantastically wealthy. So much so, because the, the Nasi is also a political position. It's kind of a hybrid we have to be a great sage and also a, a politician who's able to deal with uh, the, the, you know, the, the bid shots in Rome. And the Talmud says he, he has enough money to pay any bribe, any tribute, any homage, whatever he needs. He's got that political clout that comes with uh, tremendous astronomical wealth. Moreover, comes from one of the other first families of the Jewish people, direct descendant of, of Ezra. His father's 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 father was Ezra. And that also gives him a certain standing amongst the people and a certain uh, merit of the fathers. He is an ideal candidate. So they would go over to Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah and they tell him, okay, do you want to be the head of the academy? Do you want to be the Nasi? And what does he say? Famous words uttered by almost everyone who is offered such a job. I have to ask my wife. 
And he goes and he asks his wife. And she says to him, well, they're firing Rebbe Gamliel. You know what that means? They could fire you too. Maybe you shouldn't take the job. So he tells her, well, you're right. I, I don't necessarily have, have job security here. But you know what? You don't, and he used a euphemism, but you don't, if someone offers you a goblet, don't say I'm not going to use the goblet because it might break. If I have the option today, if I have the opportunity today that may not come tomorrow, I should seize it. I should take the opportunity. His wife, okay, she understands that argument. She poses a different argument. You're, after all, you're 18 years old. You're a little kid. No one's going to respect you. You don't even have any white hair. How could you possibly be the candidate? And Talmud tells us that the miracle happened. That night, his hair turned white. And the Talmud says, we read in the Haggadah, there's a line from Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, and he says, Behold, I am like a 70-year-old man. I'm like a 70-year-old man. It's a very unusual thing. If you're 70, you're 70. If you're not 70, you're not 70. You can't be like 70. And this is the answer. He was 18 years old, but he was artificially aged to look the part. Now, you have a little kid, maybe a great scholar, but they're not going to be influential. Someone who looks like they're 70, but maybe has the vigor and the, the energy of an 18-year-old, it's the, it's the magic uh, balance, and everyone realizes that this is some sort of sign from heaven. Of course, it's not a miracle of, uh, of uh, biblical proportions, but it's, it's still something significant. And Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, he takes the post. Rabbi Gamliel is deposed, and the great descendant of Ezra the Sofer, Ezra the scribe, who, by the way, is a Kohen, or Cohen really has no business being a king. Cohen, they have their responsibility, their offices. So he's not—he's not really the ideal candidate from a pedig- from, from a pedigree perspective. Really, it's Rabbi Gamliel's office by right. But now the academy is following the rulings of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, and the Talmud goes on to say what. The new Nasi did on his very first day in office, just like today, you know, you have the first 100 days, FDR says, okay, 100 days, we're, we're changing the country, 100 days. You don't wait 100 days. In antiquity, the great Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah, on day one, makes several drastic changes in the way the academy functioned, and the resultant flowering of Torah made this particular day a very important, a very significant day in Jewish history. The first thing he did is he fired someone. Who did he fire? He fired the guard by the door. There was a guard by the door. And the guard would only allow certain people to come in. Because Rabbi Gamliel had a philosophy. If your inside is not like your outside, then you're not welcome to the academy. Which means you have to be a tremendous scholar in the way you present yourself externally, but you also have to be someone who has sterling, scintillating character internally as well. You can't be, if there's any contradictions between how you are internally and how you are outwardly, you're not a candidate. And therefore, they had a guard and only the approved people were allowed in. The first measure, the first move, the first executive order of Rabbi Lazar ben Azari on the day that he was appointed Nasi, that man is fired 
anyone who wants to come study is welcomed in. Now, I had an interesting thought over Shabbos uh, regarding this idea. You know, you have – how exactly does Rabbi Gamliel determine the eligibility of the candidates who is internally righteous and externally righteous? It's something that's very hard, you know, because we have our dual life. Everyone has our, uh, like a dual life, the internal kind of who you are really genuinely and how you present yourself to the world. And maybe we could get hints sometimes – the Talmud tells us that how do you, you get a peek into someone's real life with three things. Bikiso, Bikaso, Bikoso. With his money, how they spend their money, that, that that's a window into who they really are. Someone could be very flowery about how generous they want to be. But push comes to the shove. How generous are they? That's a way to find out who they really are. Bikoso, which is your cup. When they start drinking, something real about them comes out, surfaces. Ubikaso, and with your anger. Someone gets angry. How does someone act when they're angry? Sometimes people could be very angry, but could have tremendous self-control. Other people get angry. They start throwing chairs. They start streaming obscenities, expletives, things like that. That's a window. Everyone gets angry. Getting angry is not a problem. How do you behave when you get angry? Someone could kind of be very in control. That shows that they have a certain degree of maturity, a certain a certain self-control. That they're more developed internally. So Talmud tells us that there are some ways even for us to figure out what's really happening internally with other people. But Ramliel, my theory that I had over Shabbos is that there's a, there's a whole different way that he did it. And the story of how I think he did it is as follows. My grandfather, blessed memory, he spent four years in the Harvard of yeshivas, in the Mir Yeshiva, not when it's in its current location in Jerusalem, but in Mir, the town of Mir in Poland, this is till this day, it's the, it's the oldest yeshiva, it's the largest yeshiva, it's the most prestigious yeshiva. It's the Mir yeshiva. It's the flagship yeshiva of the Jewish people. And he spent four years there, but he talked a lot about his one weekend that he spent in this town called Kamenitz. Kamenitz is another town in, in Europe. And Kamenitz was home to another yeshiva, Yeshiva that had moved to Kamenitz. But it was most famous for its Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva, was one of the great sages, the great Rosh Yeshivas of the pre-war Europe. His name was Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz. Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz. Oh, a great legend. We could talk about him for a long time. But a great legend, a great sage, a real, a real genius is genius. Someone who's a, a very, a very, um, very iconic a character of the pre-war European yeshiva world. But he spent Shabbos in Kamenitz, in the yeshiva. He wanted to see Rabbi Bar. And he always used to tell over that the students, the students warned all the visitors not to approach Rabarach Bear, not don't approach and say good Shabbos. You know, you go to the yeshiva, you go so good, so good, you would say good Shabbos to the great rabbi, the great luminary, the great sage. Don't approach him in the event that you have Tumas Keri. What does Tumas Keri mean? Tumas Keri means you're impure due to a seminal emission. Don't approach the rabbi if you're impure due to a seminal emission. We know that Torah tells us in the book of Leviticus that there's people who become impure with a seminal mission. And the way you undo that is you go, you go to the mikvah. 
don't approach Rabbi Leibowitz unless you are purified from any seminal omissions, um, whether they are unintended or intended. Why? Because he could tell. That's what the student said. He could tell. He could see it on your face. That's what, that's what the student said. And therefore, kind of, I would assume some of the contingency says, okay, we're not going to go say hi. It's too terrifying. He could see right through you. So I was thinking, for, for Baruch Bear, an icon, of course, of the 20th century and in the, in the late uh, 19th century, if he could see right through you to such a degree, could you imagine what Rogamlil would see when he would look at you? A sage of 2,000 years ago? An otherworldly sage? A different, different era? A different generation? A different epoch of, of Jewish scholars? I would imagine he could read you like an open book. Regardless of how exactly Rogamlil determined the eligibility of the students, those rules were discarded on day one. And the Talmud describes what happened. There was a tremendous renaissance, a boom of scholarship. They had to add benches. According to one opinion, they had to add 400 benches to accommodate all the new students. According to a second opinion, they had to add 700 benches to, to accommodate the new students. And Rogamlil, who has not departed the academy, he didn't go home in disgrace. He didn't walk home with his tail between his toes. In fact, to his credit, the Talmud says he didn't even stop and leave the academy for a second. He accepted the ruling and he continued studying. He, he, he took the lesson home. He, he yielded to the decision of the, of the sages. But as he sees now, there's tons of new students. They have to add benches and benches and benches and benches. And he gets all sad. Maybe, God forbid, I withheld Torah from the Jewish people. Maybe my policy was wrong. And the Talmud goes on to say that to pacify him, he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw white jugs that were filled with ashes. Which means his vision was indeed true. That there's these white jugs, these beautiful jugs. But inside, it's ashes, it's useless. This idea, his concern that there were people who were externally worthy, but internally they were lacking, in his dream he was shown that indeed his concern was justified. But the Talmud says, no, the truth is it wasn't justified. But the Almighty, so to speak, gave him that dream to assuage his consciousness. Regardless, the Talmud goes on to say what else happened that day. A whole book of the Mishnah was taught that day. And every time in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, it says, Bo Bayom, on that day, this and this and this happened, they clarified all kinds of, of Torah questions. That was that same day. That same day that they deposed Rabbi Galil, they also brought every question up for debate to resolve the questions. It seems like the philosophy was, there was much less debate when Rabbi Gamliel was present. It was more uh, authoritarian and top-down, so to speak. Rabbi Gamliel makes the decision. That's the ruling that is obligatory. Now they're surfacing all the questions. Everyone's welcome to the debate. And let's resolve it in a more, uh, I would say, democratic way. And the Talmud was on to say that Rabbi Gamliel, he himself, he didn't stop. He didn't depart from the base, base marriage from the academy even for a single second. And he participated in the debate. The Talmud records which debate he he opined on. And I think this is a tremendous testament to his, to his greatness. You know, if someone's fired, they leave. But 
he says, I'm going to stay and I'm, I'm not going to depart. I'm going to accept the ruling, absorb the pain that it entails. Demotion is not pleasant for anyone, but demotion and staying there and just being relegated to a backbencher, it's, it's, it shows a tremendous character that, that he had. Now, the Talmud goes on to say, okay, so, so what did he do? And he realized that because this all happened, and according to some opinions, he also realized that the miracle happened, that the new appointee, the new Nasi is now overnight, he's, he's white. Obviously, there's something legitimate about his appointment. And he decides, you know what, I'm going to go to try to ask forgiveness from Rabbi Yoshua. And the Talmud tells that he made a trip to Rabbi Yoshua's home. And he saw that the walls of the home were blackened. Rabbi Yeshua was very destitute. And Rabbi Gamliel tells Rabbi Yeshua, I see from the walls of your home that you're a blacksmith, which is a very difficult job, but also a very uh, menial job. It's a menial job, also not high paying. And I didn't know that. Rabbi Gamliel is the family of royalty, if there is a royalty, a royal family of the Jewish people at the time. And Rabbi Yeshua, who was, you know, in the top two sages of the nation, he has to live in such a uh, pitiful way. So Rabbi Yeshua responds to him, Woe unto a generation that its leader is you, and you don't even know the pain of the great sages, of the great scholars, how they make a living, and how they feed their families. So he says, this is this is a problem. This is a testament to the fact that maybe you're not the best candidate because you're a little bit aloof, a little bit above the people, and you don't even know the struggles of the common folk or even of the sages. Regardless, Roman Leal makes a pitch for forgiveness, and he asks him, please forgive me for what I did to you, for I embarrassed you. And Rabbi Yeshua did not yield. And then he says, forgive me not for my own sake. Forgive me for the honor of my father. Remember his father, who was his predecessor. His name was Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. And the reason why it's confusing is because we have a tradition to name after grandparents and things like that. So there was one Rabbi Gamliel, and then he had a son, Rabbi Shimon, and he had a son, Rabbi Gamliel. So whenever you say Rabbi Gamliel, it's always the first Rabbi Gamliel. Call Rabbi Gamliel Hazakain, Rabbi Gamliel the Elder. Or is it the second Rabbi Gamliel, called Rabbi Gamliel Diavne, of Yavne. And his father is Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Gamliel, the original Rabbi Gamliel's father is also Rabbi Shimon. So there's two Rabbi Shimons, and well, I think there's three, because Rabbi Gamliel's son was also Rabbi Shimon. So there's Rabbi Shimon, the son of Hillel. There's Rabbi Shimon, the son of Gamliel the first. And there's Rabbi Shimon, the son of Gamliel the second. Again, it's confusing. But Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the father of the current deposed Nasi, he was the Nasi that preceded him, and he was executed by the Romans. When the Romans destroyed the temple, they executed Rabbi Shimon Gamliel and Rabbi, and Rabbi, Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, who was the high priest, the, the, the Nasi and the high priest. Rabbi Gamliel at the time was very young. Therefore, he was unnaturally, means he, he was, he, he was elevated to becoming the Nasi at a very young age because his father was, was executed. His father was assassinated by the Romans. But when 
Rabbi Yeshua's appeal, the appeals made to Rabbi Yeshua in the honor of his colleague, Rabbi Shimon, who was the father of the current Rabbi Gamliel, he accepted it. And he says, I give you a full forgiveness, and therefore, if you're fully forgiven, you should be reinstated. You've done your penance, it's time for you to be reinstated. When we forgive, forgiveness is total, as if the sin never happened, and therefore, he is he has totally expiated himself from this particular encounter. Okay, now it's time to go inform the rabbis. We, Rabbi Gamliel has been reinstated. So Talmud goes on to say that uh, they sent someone as a messenger. He wasn't allowed in. They, they ignored him. They said, oh, maybe you're, you're scheming. Maybe this is not legit. Finally, Rabbi Shua himself takes the responsibility to go and inform the sages. And they said to him, okay, Rabbi Shua, you yourself, the reason why we depose Rabbi Gamliel is because of your honor. And therefore, if you are telling us that you want him to be reinstated, we are going to indeed accept that. Rebecca Leal is going to be restored to his perch, to his Nasihood. The problem is, of course, that in the interim, Rebecca was appointed. What do we do with him? Once he's appointed, we can't just fire him for no reason. And if we try to develop like a co-Nasihood, and the way the Nasi was the, the most important, I guess, representation of the Nasi was the lecture they would give. They would give a lecture every Shabbos. Every Shabbos they would give a lecture. So if we do one week Rabbi Gamliel, one week Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah, then there's going to be competition because they're co-heads, they're going to butt heads. So instead, what they agreed is that there'll be three weeks, Rabbi Gamliel, who again is the more legitimate candidate. He's the one who had it initially. He's the one who has the, the, the familial, the familial right to that office. And Rabbi Elizabeth Azaria, he'll speak, he'll lecture on the fourth week. So three and one, 75% to Rabbi Gamliel and 25% to Rabbi Elizabeth Azaria. And the Talmud frequently or often has a question, a debate, which Shabbos is this? Is it this Shabbos, the, the three out of four weeks of Rabbi Gamliel? Is it the Shabbos of Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah? Because they had this, this disagreement, this kind of like senior position and more junior position, but both of them are still called the Nasi, but one of them is, is more is more senior and gets three out of four weeks. The Talmud does tell us that there were missions that were made to Rome, and both of them went. Both of them went to represent the Jewish people together with Rabbi Akiva. There's a story uh, where uh, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Elizabeth Nazari, and I believe Rabbi Gamliel are traveling to Jerusalem, and they see the fox coming out of the Holy of Holies. There's another story where they go to, to Rome together. It seems like the the triumvirate, so to speak, of Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi, Ele- Rabbi Elizabeth Nazari, and Rabbi Akiva and this is, of course, after the passing of Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer, which was more the previous generation, they became uh, not only um, with respect to the lectures, but the other roles and respons- responsibilities of the of the Nasi were dispensed uh, equally or were distributed between the greatest sage, Rabbi Akiva, and uh, the two co-Nasis, Rabbi Gamliel and um, Rabbi Elizabeth Nazariah. And there was a previous triumvirate in Yavna, when Rabbi Gamliel was together with Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Yezer, and that's a story for a different time.
Now, there's an interesting question that uh, one of the commentaries asked on this on this uh, resolution of this compromise, three to one. Uh, the reason why they can't do one week, one week is because there'll be competition. So do two weeks, one week. Wouldn't that be a more fairer allotment of, of slots, of speaking slots? You still have the primary Nasi is Ramagam Leal, and then you have the secondary Nasi speaks every third week. That would be fair. So an interesting answer I saw. The Benishchai tells us that there's two roles, there's two benefits that Rabbi had over Rabbi Elizabeth and Azariah. Number one, precedence. He had arrived earlier. He was the incumbent, so to speak. Number two, his family, his lineage was more fitting for the job. And therefore, he had to have two additional weeks and therefore, they're both Anasi, so they each get one slot, and then two additional weeks to indicate that he has two additional benefits over Elizabeth Azaria. Now, it is interesting, we're almost done the third chapter of, of Perkyavos, it is interesting that there is no Mishnah that is authored by Rabbi Gamliel II in Perkyavos. It's it's kind of it's like almost an eye opener that Rabbi Gamliel of Yavne, the Nasi, he was not given a Mishnah here. Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah is given a Mishnah, but it's not in the first chapter where all the other Nasis were, and it's all the way at the end of the third chapter. Maybe we can speculate that he was put last. Because to not aggravate Rabbi Gamliel anymore, he was not given a Mishnah for whatever reason. He's not called Rabban either. It's not called Rabban Elizabeth Azariah. It's called Rabbi. It seems like that other element of the Nasi he did not get, that the, the honorific the title of Rabban. But also he's, he's present, his Mishnah is presented at the very end and Rabbi Gamliel is not given a Mishnah. There's something there um, and maybe – I would imagine there was a very good reason why Rabbi was not coming to Mishnah, uh, but maybe that would be why Rabbi Lezer, who is almost, I guess, the concern at least of, of competition, was present. He was presented all the way at the end, which is not as uh, attractive a spot. Who knows? The, the next generation, it went to Rabbi son, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon, and then it went on. Who His son was Rabbi Judah the Prince. Of course, uh, one of the Nasi and one of the, pr- the princes who towered over them all, who, of course, uh, was the architect of the Mishnah and, uh, one of the, one of the leaders of our history that's truly transformative up there with Moses, with Hillel, with, with Ezra, uh, with Rav, Ravina Ravashi. He, he was one who created a, a massive shift in, in the direction of, of, of the nation, took concrete steps to preserve the continuity of the nation, uh, a legend uh, for all time, Rabbi Judah the Prince, is a grandson of Rabbi Gamliel. His son is Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel II, and his son is Rabbi Judah ben Rabbi Shimon. He was the Nasi, and his son, by the way, was also called Gamliel, and was also the Nasi, Gamliel the third one. To me, I view this, this conflict and how it was resolved, to me, is the template of how to deal with very naughty, controversial conflicts. It's done with respect. It's done with uh, a certain gravity. 
It's done with calculation, making sure that everyone feels like their needs are met. It's done with the needs of the people and with the needs of the individuals in a way that can create a harmonious but also productive resolution to the conflict. Rabbi Gamaliel's position was correct. Everyone acknowledged that his strong stand was needed. They wanted to temper it a little bit, but not to lose it, to kind of have the fist and take out a little bit of the sting from it and to kind of put him in place, but but not in a, in a, in a demeaning way, to kind of make him a better leader by intervening, so to speak, in, uh, in this very unprecedented way. Now, there's another interesting, maybe not as controversial, but another interesting story in the Talmud with respect to Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah that I want to share. It's an iconic discussion in the Talmud, and it does present uh, a little bit of the, uh, of the flavor of the, uh, of the, of the times. The Talmud of the Book of Yoma, page 85a, tells of a stroll a stroll that happened, and Rabbi Akiva was part of the stroll, and Rabbi Yishmael was participating as well, and Rabbi Alazar ben Azariah, the author of our Mishnah, he was there too, and Levi, the organizer, we don't know who that is, maybe he's the bureaucrat, he's like a secretary, Levi, the organizer, he was present, Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Alazar ben Azariah, he too was part of this Spatzir, as they say in Yiddish, this stroll. What do great sages do when they stroll? They discuss Torah matters. And the question that was posed is, how do we know? What is the source that pikuach nefesh, that a case of life-threatening emergency, overrides the Shabbos? What is the evidence for that? What is the basis for that? What is the source for that? And it tells us that each one of the sages presented a different source to show a little bit, again, of the dynamism of these great sages. One sage offered his proof, and that says, okay, I'll offer a different proof. Rabbi Shmuel offers one proof. Rabbi Chivo offers a second proof. And Rabbi Elazar, the author of our Mishnah, offers a third proof, and then it goes on. It tells us Rabbi Elazar's proof was, what's the proof? How do we prove that... A case of a life-threatening emergency overrides the Shabbat. He proves it from circumcision. What's the proof? Circumcision, that perfects only one organ in the body. And it overrides Shabbat. If you have a circumcision, you allow to do it on Shabbat. Someone's life, all 248 organs. If that's at, if that's at stake, we're going to perfect and preserve that. Most certainly that should override the Shabbat. What an interesting proof. And again, to see that our great sage is privy to one of the iconic conversations in the Talmud. Of course, it's a very big piece and we don't go through it. We can't go through it all, but it does, it does offer a little glimpse into the sages and what they did when they were talking and, and the, the, the dynamic nature of, of their discussions. Another interesting discussion. The Talmud talks about how, how much Capital punishment is appropriate. In societies that believe in capital punishment, which is almost all of them, in one way or the other, either judicially or extrajudicially, but we do believe in some degree of punishment to people who do very severe offenses. How much is appropriate? 
So the Talmud tells us every seven years a court should process a capital punishment case. Comes along Rabbi ben Azariah, and he says every 70 years, if a court executes at a higher rate than once every 70 years, it is a murderous court. Comes along Rabbi Tarf and Rabbi Akiva, and they say, well, if we were present in the court when they were deliberating questions of capital punishment, no one would ever get executed. We would be so assiduous in cross-examination, in interrogation of witnesses, we could invalidate any testimony, and therefore there would never be a case that gets through us. We would make sure that every case results in acquittal. And the sages said to them, okay, you think that's very good? In the end, all you'll do with that philosophy is make sure there's a lot of murders happening because there's no deterrent. If you're on the court, there's no deterrent. So it seems like the Talmud is saying is that a little bit of capital punishment is appropriate, is necessary, or else you have anarchy, you have murder. So the deterrent is needed, but we have to make sure that uh, we don't, God forbid, allow someone who is innocent to fall through the cracks of the judicial system and to be executed. Rabbi Elizabeth Azari is also the author of a very interesting statement, a very interesting philosophy of how we should relate to the things the Torah forbids. How do we relate to the things the Torah forbids? So for example, bacon. I've heard it's quite tasty. I never tasted it. I've heard it's fantastic. Should I say, bacon, pig, it's disgusting. I'm revolted by it. Oh, I want to puke. Should I say that? Or should I say, it's very tasty. Maybe it's even very healthy. But you know what? I'd love to have it. But the Almighty said no. Which one of those, a very interesting question, very interesting philosophical dilemma, says Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azariah, a person should say, I'd love to eat it. But the Almighty forbade it. And the Rambam in an essay, the Rambam tells us that, yes, we should be desirous of the things that are prohibited, but say we can't do it because the Almighty is, of course, the, the ultimate force, the ultimate power telling us no. But it depends. If it's a corrupt, no one should say, says the Rambam, I'd love to murder my neighbor. They're mowing the lawn on Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Oh, if only I could stab them through their heart. But the Almighty said no. <laughs> Says the Ram, no, that's corrupt. The things that a normal society bans are things that we should not be interested in doing at all. So anything that's included in a functioning society, anything that's included in the seven Noahide laws, anything that's included in, in a normal, in a normal civilization, you have rules. You cannot slash your neighbor's tires. You just can't do it. The Torah forbids it also. But society, Human intellect also forbids it. The things that human intellect forbids, those you should not say you're desirous of. However, the things that only God forbids because of higher reasons that maybe we don't even know, those things we could say, yes, as a normal human, physiologically, I'd love to have it, but God's a higher power. That's the balance that the Ram says. But this is an interesting philosophy to, to, to dwell upon, the idea that we're saying, yes, I'd love to partake in it, I'd, I'd love to indulge, but no, the Almighty said no, and therefore I listened to him. And that's what Rabbi Elazar Benazari tells us is the appropriate response.
Now, he was astoundingly wealthy. Like we saw, one of his credentials to be the leader was the fact that he was very wealthy. How wealthy was he? Says the Talmud. I'll tell you how wealthy he was. Torah tells us that we have to give 10% of our livestock to Meiser, to tithe. We have to tithe 10%. His annual tithing, says the Talmud, was 13,000 animals. So that means that every year in his flocks, he had 130,000 animals, heads of cattle and sheep, that were born to him which obviously is astronomic. Is it an exaggeration? Who knows? But it does convey the very valuable lesson that, or valuable insight that he was inordinately, exorbitantly wealthy. The, the Tosvos, one of the commentaries on the side of the Talmud, he asks an interesting question. He says, wait a minute. Our blessed Azariah, he lived after the temple was destroyed, right? Remember, he shows up in Yavna. He's 18 years old. When he's appointed to the Nasi, and this is several years into the Avni experience. So he couldn't have been more than a kid at the time the temple was destroyed. And we know that animal tithing, that law, ceased or was abolished after the temple was destroyed. So how does he have so much cattle that he's tithing when he he lived after the temple was destroyed? That's Tosa's question. Again, this is an example of the commentaries, who has all of Talmud in front of him like an open book, and saying, wait a minute, in this page of Talmud over here it says this, in this page of Talmud says that, putting it all together we have a question. Rabbi Lazar Azaria is in, purported here in the book of Beitza to give 13,000 animals in a tithing, yet we know his era and we know that when temples destroyed, tithing of animals ceased, what's the deal? How do we reconcile that? And, Tom, and Tosus gives three answers. The first answer is that it didn't stop instantly. It subsequently ceased. Maybe it was a couple of years, a couple of decades afterwards. And therefore, he was in that, in that time period where, where his, uh, his livestock was indeed tithed. Alternatively, he, he was a trust fund kid, meaning that his, his father left him a tremendous inheritance and he was a little kid. But there was an overseer of his fund, and that was still when the temple was extant, and that uh, the overseer, the fiduciary that was hired to run his estate, would tithe for him. It's the second answer. And the third answer, which does give us a window into how the Romans operated, the third answer was that, no, it wasn't a tithing, you know, to fulfill the law of tithing. It was a 10% tax that the Romans imposed on all new cattle that was the same kind of tax. The result was the same, but the, it was not, it was not done to the, you know, in, in the format of the, the tithing of the animals, it was done to the coffers of, of Rome. I think it is interesting. You know, his superlative wealth, I think it may be reflected in the valuable lesson that he that he teaches, that he imparts to us, when he tells us that if there's no Torah, there is no flower. Flower, of course, is a representation of, of, of physical sustenance, but also physical material wealth. If there is no Torah, then what value 
does flour have? What value does material wealth have? If someone is poor, they wouldn't know anything about wealth. If someone is very wealthy, then maybe their perception of, of what, what wealth truly is could be very valuable for us because they could share, you know, from their perspective, from their vantage point, their, their take on wealth has more credence to it. Now, the Talmud goes on to say in the book of Brachos that if you happen to have a dream and in your dream you see a great sage, you have to understand what the message is. There's four pages in Talmud that talks about dreams and what they portend. For example, my favorite, if you see a snake in your dream, you should anticipate wealth. And if the snake kills you, then it's coming real soon. Get ready. But if you kill the snake, oh, you did a terrible thing because you just killed your, your, your magic bullet, your, your cash cow. What a mistake. Don't kill it. I actually had someone came over to me and says, Rabbi, I'm freaking out. I had a terrible dream of a snake and I'm, I don't know what to do with myself. I said, congratulations. I'd like to invest. I'd like to be a partner with you in your venture, whatever it is. And I pulled out the Talmud in the book of Rachos, page 57, says the Talmud, if you see a snake in your dream, you'll become wealthy. And if it kills you, even better. That's what the Talmud says. So that's one example. Talmud talks about all these things. If you see in their dream, what they mean. Of course, these are advanced ideas. I don't even know if we could, you know, have any understanding of what these even mean. The Talmud goes on to say that certain dreams are a measure of prophecy. If you take prophecy and divide it into 60 parts, one of those parts, 1.5% of a prophecy is conveyed in a dream. Says the Talmud, if you see Rabbi Judah the prince in your dream, anticipate wisdom. If you see Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, the last high priest who was executed by the Romans, who was flayed by the Romans, you see him in your dream, bad news, anticipate punishment, bad things are about to happen. If you see Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah in your dream, you should anticipate wealth because no one had more of it than him. And he is the author of our Mishnah. The Mishnah again reads, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, if there's no Torah, there's no Derech Eretz. If there's no Derech Eretz, there's no Torah. If there's no wisdom, there's no fear of heaven. If there's no fear of heaven, there's no wisdom. If there's no knowledge, there's no insight. If there's no insight, there's no knowledge. If there's no flower, there is no Torah. If there is no Torah, there is no flower. We don't have enough time to delve into this. And therefore, we're going to punt this to next time. Even if we don't get into the meat of, or the flower, of the, of the lesson, uh, we do have, uh, I think, a very valuable takeaway just of, of the lives and the, the very grave dilemmas facing our sages of yesteryear. And uh, we get a, a picture, I think a, a fantastic picture, of how to, uh, how to resolve conflict on a very high level in a way that could actually promote uh, flourishment and, 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 and success. And uh, we're introduced to a, a sage who is going to give us not only Mishnah number 21, but also the subsequent Mishnah number 22, and uh, bring us close to the end of chapter 3 of Perker Avos of Chapters of Fathers and give us tremendous, valuable, and actionable insight on how to live our lives and 
we're looking forward to next time where we're going to dig into that in a, in a, hopefully in a very, uh, in a very valuable way.